The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Polymeropoulos, and this is DSR's Spy Show. Today, I'm very happy to welcome uh, as our guest, Laura Thomas. She's a former CIA case officer and base chief. Um, who built and led sensitive programs at CIA headquarters uh, and abroad in multiple international assignments. She served over 17 years in national security and leadership. Uh, and most recently, she is a, a member of Aspen Institute's Aspen Tech Policy Hub Tech Ex- Executive Leadership Initiative. She's a member of Out in National Security 2021 Outlist and an advocate for LGBTQ issues in both government and industry. She's been super um, kind of out there now in, in terms of uh, uh, Tackling some really important issues, um, uh, you know, in in are in the open world now, and so that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have her on today. And so I'm I'm thrilled and I'm honored, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So one of the things that um, I always talk about, uh, particularly when we have someone, you know, from our old line of work uh, at CIA, which is really in the shadows. I mean, when, you know, when you go into the, the intelligence community, you know, you don't ever expect. Um, to be on podcasts or on, you know, in national media and things that I certainly uh, did. And, you know, some of the things you look back and you're like, I can't believe I, you know, um, you know, there's several million people watching you on TV and it's what you are doing now. And and so I guess the, the question for you, just to start off before you get into some of the kind of the real, real issues is, is why'd you do it? Why'd you decide to kind of jump out into the public arena? Uh, I mean, looking at national security, you know, very intensely as one does in that career at CIA, just seeing that the future of it, in my view, really rests with the decisions we make around technology and wanting to make sure that I, I understood technology at a, in a different light and from a different angle. And ultimately, I hope to go back into government one day. Perhaps I'm just a glutton for punishment for bureaucracy sometimes, but uh, just wanting to have a different view. How are companies, deep techs specifically and in, in you know, deep tech that has national security implications. How are they formed? How do they fuel themselves? What's their impact uh, in national security, but also the commercial sector? How does investment work? I wanted to learn all of those things. So I jumped out uh, and that's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years. 
And I think I, I you know, forgive me for in the introduction, I didn't really address that enough. Is that really what you, that's what you were doing? Um, talking about emerging technology, quantum sensing and computing things, of course, that, yeah. that a lot of us, I, I'm impressed with this because as a, as a former case officer, which I think it's, I'm not sure what I'm qualified to do now. Um, <laughs> after 26 years at the agency, but that's stuff I don't really understand. So um, this is fantastic that you're, you're doing this. Did you ever get a sense though? And I, I, again, I, I asked this because this is, this has always plagued me is if I'm sitting on the set of MSNBC and there's, you know, there's a million people about to watch on TV, I get something all the time that's called imposter syndrome. In other words, what the hell am I doing here? Um, are, you know, when you're, when you're now jumping out into public and so you're addressing things like, like, you know, like tech, um, but even when you're, you know, you're kind of approaching other things, maybe some more controversial issues. Do you ever get that sense that the, the imposter syndrome? It's I and I love it. I love this discussing this because a lot of, you know, a lot of folks say, okay, well, you all were tip of the spear. Everyone these type A personalities, and I'm like, you know what? I, there are some times right now where I still am like, what am I doing here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly get imposter syndrome. I mean, I think it, if you don't, then um, questioning yourself is usually a good thing. <laughs> uh, that that helps you find where the where the flaws are, where the cracks are. Uh, you know, and I, I, certainly I don't know everything about quantum physics, but I work with a lot of quantum physicists every day, for example. And you know, I know I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I can help find the smartest person in the room and then get their thoughts on something and then start piece together, you know, a strategy and a plan for a company. Uh, and I think that's something that case officers in particular do fairly well. I mean, when you think about what we did in the field, there's a lot of judgment involved, a lot of second, third order thinking, thinking about all the ways things could go wrong in effort to get things right. And I think that is is something that translates quite well uh, to the business sector, certainly to deep tech. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that that was always the, the the mantra, I think, for a lot of us was being, you know, comfortable in the in the uncomfortable. And, and that's okay. Um, yeah. and, but also and from what you're saying here too is, is particularly as a, as a case officer when then you become a manager and then as you kind of rise up in the in the managerial managerial ranks having that notion or the character trait of humility I think is really important um, the the best the best jobs I did as a manager is when I realized that everyone around me was smarter than me and that's okay yeah and it was just yeah. my job of bringing people together give you know react to that statement right there yeah I mean I I remember the the first time I was really a chief of base, not just an acting chief of base, one of the people, one of the guys who, who worked for me, I, I just, he was far smarter than I was. And I was thrilled to have him because whenever there was a sticky situation, you know, I knew I could go to him and bounce ideas off of him. And, and we collectively would come up with, you know, a solution that I think was certainly better than what I would have come up with on my own. And, uh, you know, humility, though, sometimes in the case officer field, a lot of people think that it's lacking. I can understand why uh, at times because there there are some stereotypes out there. But I do think the best case officers, at least that I've seen and worked with, they did have fairly high levels of humility and empathy. I think, and that that word empathy is huge too. It says, you know, as I go around, I talk to, um, I do a lot of work with everything, you know, sports teams, police departments, private sector clients, but but I use that word constantly. Um, in terms of you know teaching uh, leadership principles, uh, empathy I think is uh, is super important. You know, and it's it's you know you're not you're not you're actually a stronger leader when you show empathy rather than um, what some may perceive as as weakness. But I, I would hope that the agency is is changing as well. I think that 
you know, in, in at least at my time, you know, I was there from 93 to 2019. I think the leadership training we got was what a series of one week courses over a career. And I think you do three of them. Um, not exactly what was, uh, uh, you know, not, not similar. In fact, to the U S military where, you know, you go off for, um, in a 20 year career, you might go off on several occasions for a year to a command and staff college. Um, how do you think the agency taught leadership? What's your, what's your sense on that? Uh, I, you know, somehow it's trial by fire. Um, and could it do better? Yes. I mean, there were certainly a number of courses that, that I took that were offered to me that I thought were quite good. Um, others were box checking exercises. I think anyone who's worked in government, you can spot when the box checking exercises are happening and, and how do you make those more, uh, valuable and actually worthwhile? I think it comes back to, you know, the ability to have truly honest and open conversations to include in leadership courses. Um, and I think the agency could do better in that. But now that I'm, I'm out and I'm looking back at, you know, from the private sector, I think compared to most places, it does an exceptional job. Um, but I think, you know, back to the trial by fire, I mean, there are just so many things you experience, especially if you're in the field um, as a case officer. You, 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 if you don't learn leadership principles to some degree, you're, you're going to fail. So, um, you know, it's, it's sort of ingrained it's not necessarily that the agency is seeking it, but it's the natural result of being put in situations where you're making decisions that can be life or death for some people. I'd agree with that. And also learning from it um, as well. To me, there was nothing, you know, there were, there were times in my career, particularly the end of my career, when I knew whether I was in a base or a station that, you know, whatever happened that day, I probably had experienced it or I knew someone who had experienced it. Um, and I'd also be able to call on colleagues too for advice. That's another thing, I think, in, in terms of uh, being a leader, not being afraid to, to lean on your peers. Um, let's, let's switch just for a moment to the, the private sector. And you've written about the transition um, to the private sector. And I think providing some really much needed advice to, to especially our former colleagues in the USG looking to make that jump. Um, it certainly can be kind of daunting and scary. There's a line you wrote in the cipher brief that I loved. I mean, I think that we all should take to heart as you, as you kind of job search. And it's all, it's a notion of, I think what you said is that um, we, we, you know, we certainly are, are a remarkable bunch, um, you know, warts and all, but former IC officials. But you said it's exponentially harder to be hired by the agency than it is to get into Harvard. And I, I love that line because that kind of means we're, you know, we're pretty effing good. Um, and, and don't be scared when you make that jump to the private sector. So and of course, it, it is scary and hard for some. So, you know, talk to a little bit about that. Um, uh, you know, your, first of all, your experience, but, but what you can offer to others who are, who are looking to make that jump. Yeah. I think the, the lesson is don't, don't sell yourself short. Uh, if, if you have been at CIA, you've probably faced, uh, decisions and you've had experiences that, that really do set you apart from the general population of, of job seekers. And certainly if you've worked your way up through the ranks and you've had, managerial assignments, if you've led teams, if you've uh, led bases or stations, especially, I mean, that's essentially equivalent of being a CEO. Uh, the only thing that you don't have is a real understanding of how the financial world works as far as, you know, truly reading a, a financial statements, balance sheet, cash flow, all of that. You can learn that. Um, but there are things that, that you have done that are incredibly valued by industry. And it's just this ability to make decisions with limited data and compressed timeframes, thinking through second, third order effects of decisions, 
being willing to, to take risk, but, but also knowing how to mitigate those risks. That's very important. And, uh, you know, just the judgment that, that comes along with also knowing what it's like to be rejected, having to put yourself out there and being willing for people to tell you no and finding a way to work around the no and get to a yes. I mean, at, at CIA, when you're recruiting people, you can't just walk up to them and say, you have to work for me or else. I mean, a lot of people think that, but that's, that's very rarely how it goes. That's not how you want it to go. So uh, you have to have influence and you have to know how to uh, you know, speak to people's motivations, what, what they really want. And that absolutely applies uh, in the business world, you know, in the C-suite with board members, um, with investors, uh, with customers. So I just, I think that, that a, a lot of people in the agency, you know, they, they leave and they think, gosh, what, what do I offer? What can I offer to the world? And I would say, geez, so much. There's a lot. Yeah, for sure. No, a hundred percent. I mean, again, it's, I mean, this is a, uh, I, I got to use a quote um, uh, from here from my book, um, which came out several years ago, but it's, it's, it's exactly that. It was, you know, it's called the idea is what I call the clarity and crisis. Um, but but it's it's managing in tough situations. It's it's learning from adversity. Um, and I think when you move into the private sector, I mean, you know, obviously everyone's going to want you to tell war stories. They want to hear that. But that's really not why you're there. Um, you're there for that uh, idea of being able to serve and operate effectively in that in that kind of strange gray area that we lived in, where there's no you don't have a or there's a lack of situational awareness. And there's so much that's out there, and then other people get get nervous about, it, but you're not. I mean, I, I remember so many points in my career where we're making decisions and you're taking managed risk, but, you know, you don't know exactly what's going on. This was particularly the case in war zones, which I know you have you served there as well. Um, and I would think that the, the, the private sector can can learn a lot from that. Yeah, I think, you know, what you also bring to the table is an ability to see how systems really work and, you know, discerning between the superficial versus what's actually going on and being able to look at a a situation, a challenge, a scenario from multiple different viewpoints. When you're going out and you're recruiting a source, you can't just come at that source from the U.S. government's viewpoint or maybe your personal you know, biases about how you feel about a, a certain country or a certain topic. You have to really be willing to listen, understand, and think about things differently. And that is, when you do that in the business world, that's that's how you set yourself up for success. Agreed. So let's move just a, a quickly to to a foreign policy topic that I think is uh, is near and dear um, to a lot of us, and I know you've written on it as well. And that's the the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, and perhaps just the notion of the need for accountability on on what occurred. Um, both of us served as base chiefs in in war zones, and and I think when you do that, uh, and we work with kind of indigenous groups, whether it's the Iraqis or the Afghans or the or the Syrians. Um, particularly at, at, a, at a place like CIA, where there's usually you know a small number of U.S. officers and then quite a large number of indigenous forces. I know in my case in Afghanistan, you know I, I was a, a base chief in, in Paktika Province in eastern Afghanistan. Um, I wouldn't be here today without the bravery and the heroism of some of our uh, indigenous units. And so that that time was pretty painful. And and I think obviously now it's getting caught up in, in politics, and we don't have to necessarily address that today because I think on both sides of the aisle you can look at what happened there and. And, and, you know, react with a kind of sense of horror. It was visual. We saw this. But um, talk about your emotions when you when you saw what was occurring um, in Afghanistan, uh, uh, because I do think it's a, it's a little different from, you know, for those of us who actually were there. Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, complete and utter disappointment 
to see what was happening. You know, certainly a bit of despair mixed into that. Uh, we have a, a sacred duty to protect people that help protect us. And if we abdicate that duty, um, that one, there's an ethical angle to that that I think we have to think about. Um, but two, it sets us up for failure in the long term, in my view, from a foreign policy standpoint. Um, so, yeah, you know, watching that unfold, it was it was um, that was a, a, an example where the U.S. did not live up to its ideals. And, you know, I'm a real politic person. You can't live up to ideals every single time. There's certainly you know, the world's a very complicated place and you can debate. Ad nauseum, should we have withdrawn from Afghanistan? You know, generally, I think the answer is yes to some degree. Yes, we needed to turn our, our focus to more strategic, longer-term issues like China. But the way in which it was done was um, just poorly planned. And I think that signaled uh, things to others, other you know, dictators in the world. And uh, whether we like it or not, that broadcast a message about us. Um, but you know, we still have a chance to... Uh, refine that message when we think about the Afghans that are, are still in the U.S. in limbo, for example, getting them permanent status here in the U.S. I mean, that's an imperative. That That's just, you know, that's table stakes. I agree. Um, you know, there's some things we can't control, and those those Afghans who are here now um, certainly deserve our, our, our support. I think one of the, you, you brought up a really good point because um, there, there was the moral ethical side of abandoning our allies. Um, but there's also the, the notion that that, you know, anyone, any future groups are looking at us, too. And how about even our, you know, our 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 current you know, ass, asset stable? Um, you know, one of the as you as you noted that, you know, the, the, I think what what some people don't realize is that at least for me was was one of the one of the, the great joys and satisfactions um, that I got of of being a case officer was that relationship with an agent. So I, I was joked that, you know, I'm sure I, I loved my friends, you know, at the at stations or bases. I liked hanging out with other Americans, but not really as much as um, <laughs> our assets who are our yeah. lifeblood and yeah. the, the personal relationship you have with an agent. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'll get all, you know, even emotional. I think about some some agents who lost their lives, some who thankfully have been resettled, others who really did heroic work in the shadows. But it's I don't know, it's a it's a marriage. I, I, don't, I don't even know how you, how you can describe it, but. Um, it's something that is that is kind of so deeply ingrained, particularly in the psyche of, of the asset, who is looking at you and saying, "I'm going to put, you know, my life in your hands, Laura. You know, and if you screw up, you know, I'm going to die." And so, whether you're a 25, 30 year old, 35 year old, you know, uh, uh, American U.S. government official, that's a uh, not other, not many other jobs have that level of responsibility. And to me, that was um, that was really extraordinary. It was deep. It was emotional. So I think that when we leave our allies behind. And, and, you know, in our case, um, I think that just as you, you can kind of read through the lines in, in the press, I think the agency did a pretty good job of getting uh, most of our actual uh, indigenous forces out. But that to me is, uh, uh, is almost a, a, you know, part of the moral injury. Um, and it's, I, you know, one other thing too, um, that I, that I note that I certainly have, have done uh, is I've been very critical of the Biden administration. I've gone on MSNBC and criticized them. And I think a lot of people some people agreed. A lot of people didn't like that. But it's uh, this to me should be apolitical, um, uh, because again, the, the world is watching. Let me just let me just throw one more thing in there before we kind of switch topics. What about accountability? 
Um, do you think there should be a, a accountability? And the accountability could go, you know, beyond the current administration and the previous administration too. I think if you look at the Doha Accord, it's probably not the finest moment in U.S. diplomatic history. Um, so yeah, what's what's your sense on the need for accountability? I mean, accountability is key. I, I think you know, we risk making the same mistakes over and over again without it, and we need it. Uh, I think in one of my articles, you know, I wrote that a soldier that loses his or her rifle is going to face more consequences than some of the leadership uh, figures involved in planning the withdrawal and the hasty departure and, and what happened and the, the, the true loss of human life that came with that, plus the second and third order foreign policy impact of that. So, um, you know, looking at your mistakes and, and analyzing them and, and learning from them is not the same thing as succumbing to your mistakes. And, and often, just because we are in such a politicized environment, we have a really hard time doing that. I mean, I think that's hard just for anybody in, in you know, even personal accountability, that's hard. But as a country, it, it's also hard as a bureaucracy. It's very difficult. But then when you add in, you know, election cycles and, and just the polarization we have nowadays, it, it gets even harder. And that's uh, really unfortunate, but we have to find a way to do it. Um you know, there's there's certainly the, the Afghanistan Commission that's that's working on this, but you know, I'd like to see some uh, introspection from our current leadership that that truly acknowledges what happened uh, and and makes mention of it and says how we're going to do things differently in the future. You know, there was a several months ago. I think there was a 12 page NSE document. I don't know if you remember that when that came out, and it was I was horrified because in essence, the Biden administration was blaming only the Trump administration for the failures. Yeah, and that to that. me, um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of us reacted quite viscerally that most yeah. recently there was a, there was a state department after action review, which, which seemed to be a bit more, you know, nuanced um, on this, but I, you know, it, it's, it, I, I would, I will, unfortunately, I think that this is going to get caught up in politics. You know, obviously there are hearings in the house now uh, on this. Um, and so just reflexively, I think that, you know, the democratic side is going to try to defend the administration for what to me again was, um, not defensible. And that's, uh, it's too bad. And particularly in just kind of my own two cents, I think that, that, you know, the administration got their sea legs after that and have done much better on Ukraine, but you know, the Afghan withdrawal is not going to be a high point, um, for this current administration. And I think that, uh, I think the American, in my sense, the American people would actually welcome, um, some honesty if you just came out and said, you know, we really screwed this up. We learned from it. Yep. Um, but, but being too defensive, um, uh, certainly and historically is not going to, not going to cut it. Let me let me uh, get to I think um, the one topic that I was most interested in talking to you today um, about. You wrote a really important piece um, uh, on your website titled "Espionage of the Man's World," and I and I thought it was fantastic. I actually hit you up on Twitter right after that um, because it, it, in my in my view, and you know, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's not only it's a it's a kind of a treaty on the value that female case officers can bring to the to, to the agency, but it's also for a demand for the CIA to to clean up the ship, um, which yeah. I think is really important. So kind of first and foremost, you know, why did you write this? Um, what did you, what do you think of the reaction that ensued? Um, and of course the agency's reaction to the ongoing harassment issues, or maybe just give us a brief, uh, uh, overview of first what you wrote. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I essentially outlined for any young female or any young person really applying for CIA one that th there is no such thing as sex training at CIA. And the reason I wrote it is because there was uh, allegedly a former case officer who, uh, according to a Daily Beast article, 
pseudo recruited a, a young female, told her it was an agency process, and then sexually harassed her. And if any young person's out there Googling, if that were to happen to them and they're out there Googling, you know, is, is this normal? No, it's not normal. You're not in the actual CIA recruitment process. This is someone that's pulling a wool over your eyes. And I didn't want, I didn't want that to happen again, at least, you know, to the degree that I could, could impact it. Um, the other piece in the article is, you know, essentially accountability. It all goes back to accountability. Um, and, you know, the CIA is doing things to, to, that I think are you know, well-intentioned. They, they form these task forces. They create an office to prevent sexual harassment. But an office doesn't really do anything. It's individuals who do things. So how, how does the agency ultimately hold itself accountable? And I think it goes back to a lot of things go back to the promotion system and how that needs to be reformed. Uh, you know, the agency has a really hard time firing people. It's the U.S. government. It's very difficult to get rid of somebody. Uh, you would think that of all organizations, the agency would have a little bit wider latitude. And, and, and perhaps they do compared to you know, the DMV, but uh, there needs to be more latitude. We need to be able to essentially um, excise from the ranks people who uh, certainly are, are, are harassers, but you know, even mediocrity. Uh, that's one thing that I think is, is creeping in any bureaucracy is mediocrity. And how do you deal with that? You know, there's always going to be some level of bureaucracy. You can't get away from it. But but you do have to engineer and design systems and empower people to fight against that. And I think the agency has has gone too far in the other direction where it's not really paying attention to the underlying problem. It's just doing some of the superficial fixes. Do you, is one of the one of the things I, I got the sense with, uh, you know, with the announcements of kind of these new commissions is that. Well, first of all, uh, you know, it, it, uh, one of the reactions was, you know, uh, horror that this was occurring. But um, uh, I also, I also thought that the agency, in some fashion, was trying to get ahead of the issue. And in fact, they hadn't. I mean, the only reason why this issue came out is because really brave women went to the Hill, went to the oversight committees, and yeah. and you know, the House Permanent Select Committee and the Senate uh, Select Committee actually forced the change. So it wasn't really from within. And so while Perhaps the, the moves by Bill Burns, um, the, the actions they took are, are in the right step. It was not, you know, I, I, I don't get a sense the agency can always police itself. Um, sometimes they do need this kind of push. So I think these women were, were really brave. One of the things that, that you know, I, I, was, I was sitting, a good friend of mine is John Seifer. He's been on this show a lot. And, you know, he's, a, he's an old kind of Central Eurasia hand. He was talking about um, Moscow. Uh, uh, and then similarly, as a, as a Near East Division officer, I was kind of reflecting on my career. And one of the things that was, was, it was an incredible conversation because we realized that in every station we had served in two really disparate regions, our most sensitive assets uh, in almost every station uh, were handled by female case officers. Um, and I thought that was I I extraordinary. So no surprise. First, no, and, and so, so I, I want you just to comment on that. But also it goes back to this harassment issue because this has to be a place where we not only that, that, you know, female officers can feel safe and comfortable. I mean, there's a, there's not only ethical, there's a legal issue there too, but also how we, you know, uh, go around to universities now and try to recruit the next generation. Um, but your reaction to those comments, first of all, the, the notion that, um, in two, but the, any, the, the Near East Division world and the Central uh, Eurasia world, that female case officers handle the most sensitive assets. Why is that? Yeah, Cause we listen. Uh, we have <laughs> higher levels of empathy. Uh, people naturally want to tell us, secrets. Uh, you know, the fact is most, most assets are men because, you know, men hold 
positions of power in most places in the world, specifically, you know, adversarial countries where we really want to know what what those governments are up to. It's almost uh, exclusively men in power. So therefore, the assets we recruit are men. Um, It's men generally want to impress women. Uh, So having a female case officer who's handling an asset, I would argue that, that that's usually an advantage because they want to bring more to that meeting. They want to bring information that says, see, look at me, look what I can do. Um, and you know, that, that's a great thing uh, for CIA. It's also you know, these assets, I think they're looking for, um, you know, it's, a, it's an escape valve too. It's someone to talk to. And I think women, you know, no offense, Mark, but I think women generally are just better to talk to sometimes than men. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, there's there's just a level of um, asking deep questions, really trying to understand who they are, that I think comes more naturally to women than it does men, and that there's a level of authenticity there. Uh, that sometimes you know men have to work harder at it. It's not that they can't do it; they do a great job many times. But I think women, it's just a little bit more ingrained. You know, this argues almost that you know diversity is actually our you know our superpower. Um, at the agency, I mean, why it's absolutely required. I mean, I, I you know, I go back and I talk to some of my colleagues now, and, and everyone says the place is too woke, and it drives me crazy. I hate that because the, you're you're yeah. failing to understand why why a diverse workforce is so important. It's actually almost the best athlete approach. You know, we want to win. Um, I, I'll never forget there was we had a, we had a I was in the Middle East. This this I I've had this little snippet cleared by the agency, so I can say it. We had a penetration of a of an Arab intelligence service. Um, and the, the, one of our female officers was off on an SDR and they were noticed they, where they went through a surveillance net and in our penetration reports to us that this individual, um, was seen in an operational act, but, um, they're going to put heavy surveillance on her husband who they suspected could only be the CI officer because, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a female couldn't. And we sat back at the station. We're like, these idiots, this is fantastic. And yeah. the male officer had, had, you know, 24 seven bumper lock surveillance for months. And the female uh, case officer who was running our most sensitive assets was surveillance free. That's how we win. So That's fantastic. Yeah. I, 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 I love that story. Um, this is the time now uh, in the podcast where we have to say goodbye to our guests who are not yet subscribers. If you want to listen to the rest of this podcast and to all of our other shows in full, just go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It costs only $5 a month and it brings you a lot of great bonus content. So if you're not a subscriber, we hope you will be soon. And if you are one, stand by. We'll be right back.